Let's take our Bibles, if you would please, and open them to Matthew chapter 10. I'd like for us to go straight to the text today in preparation for the explanation of God's Word. And these words apply to anyone who is a Christian here today and also to anyone who's contemplating uh, trusting in Jesus Christ and committing your life to Him. These are some very important words. Matthew 10 is, is really difficult for people to understand in, in, according to what modern Christianity is like today because it doesn't often match exactly what Jesus had to say about it. So we want to read here, and we're going to look at a portion of these scriptures today, beginning in Matthew 10, verse number 24. So if you'd stand with me, please, and reverence for the reading of God's Word. We'll read 24, verse 24 down through verse number 33. Jesus says that the disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are more value than many sparrows. Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of your word today. Open this text to us, Lord, so we understand it better. Speak to hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Over the past several weeks, it seems like the introduction that I've given you to Matthew chapter 10 is pretty much the same, generally the same. I keep reminding you that what Jesus is doing in this 10th chapter is preparing the disciples for ministry. He's instructing them before they go out on their first missionary journey. They're, they're getting their feet wet in the ministry, and the intent of Jesus in this passage is for them to very clearly understand the difficulties that they would face in preaching the gospel. They were delivering a message that the long-awaited Messiah had come, that the hope of Israel is now here, that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And so, in the disciples' mind, I'm sure that they thought such a message like this will be joyously received. They thought there shouldn't be any difficulty if you're delivering such good news. And even though the Old Testament scriptures were very clear that the Savior who came, the Messiah who was to come, would be a suffering Messiah, that was not really the general perception of the people. Up to this point, Jesus had not experienced much hostility in his ministry. Not too many people were against him. And that's because he was preaching and he was healing. And the response of the people at that particular time was to welcome him. They listened intently to what he said. Crowds assembled in great numbers. And they brought people with all kinds of diseases to him to be healed. 
In the 8th chapter, there are several incidents of healing. A man that was a leper was healed. A man who had the worst disease possible, the most unthinkable disease. I mean, one that was surely a death sentence. All that Jesus did was just touch that man and he was healed from that disease. We go on reading, and the next miracle there in chapter 8 is that of a centurion servant. And then that follows with the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And on that particular day, there were hundreds of people brought from everywhere that they could be healed by Jesus. And then in chapter 9, we read there about a paralyzed man that was healed. And you remember that on the day that Jesus healed him, there were huge crowds that were there. People were lining the streets. There were so many people that were packed into that house where Jesus was preaching that it was impossible to even get into the door. So up to this time, the general population was was really on Jesus' side, and the disciples had been through that. They'd been observing that, and there hadn't yet been any real persecution. Scribes and the Pharisees, of course, were against Jesus. They didn't like him. But we also found that there was a case of a scribe who came to Jesus and said, I I, I want to believe in you. I, I think it's a good time for me to get into your ministry and do what you're doing and follow you around. Well, it wasn't long before that was going to change. Jesus had a very short ministry. He had only three years on the earth in the ministry portion of his life. And before he was through, people were so hostile towards him. They hated him so much that you know that they took Jesus and they crucified him. And so in verse number 16, when Jesus sends these disciples out, these apostles out, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. There will be so much hostility that you're going, to be, you're going to be persecuted for it. And, and what Jesus was thinking here as he told these disciples, there is no point glossing over these difficulties of ministry. After Jesus was crucified, these very same apostles would be hunted down. They would be pursued for their preaching. People that believed in them and tried to do as they did, they would be hunted down. They faced opposition from religion, and they faced it from rulers. They faced it from even their own relatives. This was the difficulty that the disciples experienced as apostles preaching the gospel of Christ. But now we come to verse number 24, and the teaching here becomes more generalized. At first, he's speaking to the apostles and maybe to perhaps more towards preachers that would follow in their footsteps. But in the 24th verse, he broadens this out, and he uses words like general terms, like disciple and servant. And you'll notice as we go further here, we get down to verse number 32, and there he says, whosoever. And so we could fairly conclude from this that Jesus intends to speak to any person who desires to become a Christian. And so these are verses that explain really the cost, the high cost of following Jesus. And it's telling us that following him is not a superficial commitment. It's not a part-time occupation. That when you become a Christian, you agree that you're going to accept this long list of potential hazards. Saving faith itself envelops this kind of thinking, this kind of commitment. And we would maintain that a person who falls short of what we read here in these verses of Matthew chapter 10, that person is not a real follower of Jesus Christ, is not a real disciple of his. Now, of course, there are some people that profess Christianity and they may be saved and they don't exactly live like they should. And we are not able to pass judgment on every single person and say, because you did this or because you did that, you can't possibly be a Christian. 
But we are prepared to say that Jesus is telling us that people who follow him and really know him, they give evidence that they know him by the lives that they live and by the kinds of things that they endure for him. So this explains that high cost. And that's not to say that there's anything that we do that will actually make us Christians. But we do believe this is teaching us there is a demonstrated faith. And these verses are a challenge to see if what our faith produces is the same thing as Jesus says in these verses, or says your faith must produce. So I think that if you were to ask anyone, what does it really mean to be a Christian? That just about everybody would think or say, well, to be a Christian, you have to be like Christ. And it doesn't matter if they have constructed a picture of Christ or Jesus in their own minds that is really not biblical, yet they do understand this, that a person who's going to be a Christian must be like him. Well, Jesus says exactly the same thing. A person that's going to be a Christian must be like me, only here he explains what it truly means to be like him. And so we started with verses 20 and 24 last week in speaking of the personal comparison to Jesus. He says in verse 24, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Now you'll notice here that the point that Jesus is making about being like him is not speaking about kindness, and it's not talking of benevolence. He's not, in this particular passage, talking of loving your neighbor as yourself. He's not talking about treating people well. He's not speaking of volunteering at the soup kitchen. Now, those are ways that you could be like Jesus, but that's not what's under discussion here. Instead, Jesus is talking about how people are going to treat you. If you are really a Christian, then you are going to be treated in the same ways that Jesus was treated. So he says then, because you follow him, you can expect the kind of treatment that he received. And I don't have to go into that long, extended explanation for you today about what happened to him. We just said a moment ago, he was crucified. They took him, they hate him, they nailed him to a cross. So we know what happened to him. He had a short life. He lived an, a, 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 an amazing life, but he went through an agonizing death because of how people hated him. And the thrust of this scripture is Jesus' words that he spoke in John fifteen eighteen when he said, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So he says, your treatment is not going to be any better than mine. And he says, in some instances, it will even be worse. They called him Beelzebub. That's the same as saying he's Satan. He's like Satan. He has demonic power. And he said, if they'll say that about me, what will they say about you? So we move on then from that to consider the next verses. In verse number 26, he says, Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, that speak ye in the light. And what you hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now today we're going to spend our time talking about the proper concerns for a disciple, the things that you really should be concerned about. And I suppose that the best way that I could begin to explain these verses is that 
A disciple of Christ has to have a rightly placed fear. The beginning of verse number 26 tells us what we should fear. And then in verse number 28, it tells us what we should not fear. So there is a wrongly placed fear and there is a rightly placed fear. And you have to know the difference between those two and keep them in the proper perspective. And when your fear is correctly placed, you will be able to make it through all of the hostility that comes against Christians. Jesus says, fear them not, therefore. And that word therefore takes us back to a preceding statement. That's what therefore is therefore. Don't fear the treatment of those that are against you, he says, because I endured it. I'm going to give you the strength to endure it also. He said, the disciple's not above the master. And that works both ways. That if you experience hostility, that's like him. He experienced it. But also he endured all of that, all of that hostility. And he says, because you are a disciple of mine and you follow me, you will also be able to endure it. I was speaking to one of the members in the hallway after we had discussed verses 16 through 23. And I was telling about in that sermon about martyrs for the faith and particularly one Lady Jane Grey who became the Queen of England when she was 16 years old. And she was beheaded because she would not renounce her faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the question that this person had in his mind is the same that I think all of us wonder. Could we actually stand for our faith if it meant death? And the answer that I give to that is that the martyrs had no special strength that we don't have today. If their faith is our faith, we will endure. If their faith was a saving faith, It was equal to the task, and that's evident. And if our faith is a real saving faith, then it will also be equal to the task. So that when this time of persecution, even if it's death, even if that comes upon us, God gives us the grace to go through that. He gives us the ability to stand for him. A true Christian will not deny the Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, then looks back to what was said before. Then Jesus says, For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. So we have this little word for in there, and for is forward-facing. Therefore is backward, for is forward-facing. What does he mean then by that statement? There is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. Well, this is the promise that truth will triumph. For the Christian, you will see that truth will triumph. Now, do you ever have, it, have times when people say that you're foolish because of what you believe? I was reading a news report about one of the presidential candidates, and he said that he believed in creationism, and he said that evolution was a theory that had, was, was lot, full of a lot of holes. Now, that wasn't exactly a full-blown endorsement for God as the creator, and it wasn't a complete repudiation of evolution. But when the news media got hold of that and the other candidates heard about that, they strung that guy out. And the other candidates strongly affirmed that they believed in evolution, and they said anybody who thinks otherwise, in effect, this is what they're saying, anybody who thinks like that, who has that kind of reasoning, has no business being in the government of the United States, no business running this country. And so you have people that call you crazy because you're a Christian. And if you teach the doctrines of the Bible and you speak about hell, if you talk about judgment, then people will say, well, what's wrong with you? You you, you are a throwback to some kind of crazy fundamentalism. 
And the church has long since abandoned that kind of thinking. And so you're left hanging out there like some sort of a crazy person because you still believe the Bible. And you still believe that God inspired his word. And you still believe that God said what he meant and meant what he said. And so what you do is you just stick with this and you keep saying it no matter how crazy people think you are. And Jesus is telling them here that when you teach the truth, you are going to be vindicated. One day you are going to be proved right because you're going to stand before God and you're going to give an account and they're also going to stand before God and they're going to give an account of their mocking ridicule. Now, as we've looked at the book of Revelation and the great white throne judgment, that is a time that's coming after this life. And everything that every person has ever said, all that mocking, all this being made fun of, everything that they do to you is going to be recorded, is recorded in God's books. And those books will be open, and God is going to compare their statements against yours. And what Jesus is saying here is that because you stood for the truth, you are going to be vindicated in that. And I can tell you that people that that mock Christianity and make fun of the things that we believe, they're going to be measured and they're going to come up short. The truth will be known. And not only will they look foolish, but they'll have to suffer the fires and punishment of hell. Now, if you go back to verse number 14, Jesus said, Some will not welcome you. He said, some, uh, some places you're going to have to leave. You'll have to leave a house. You'll have to leave a city. And he says, Sh- uh, shake off the dust from your feet. And in verse 23, he said, when persecution comes, flee to another city. And he said, don't fear it, because in the end, God's going to uphold you and damn them. Someday, all of it's going to come to light. Nothing will be hidden. All the facts will be revealed. Listen to what God spoke to the prophet Isaiah He says, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters that cover the sea. That's talking about when the kingdom of Christ comes upon this earth, there'll be no mistaking what the truth is. Now, the simple truth here is that Jesus told the disciples to preach judgment is coming. And he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the people stood around and they listened to what Jesus said and what the disciples said. And they said, I don't see a kingdom. And I don't see a king. So therefore, I'm not worried about judgment. And you know they did the same thing when Noah preached? Noah said, God is going to send a flood and all the earth is going to be covered with water. And they said, Noah, you are a crazy old man. What are you talking about? You're building a boat out here in the middle of dry ground. We've never even seen this thing that you call rain. And we've certainly never seen enough water to float a boat like that. So you're crazy. And they ridiculed him. For 120 years, they ridiculed him. And they said, everything's continuing just as it was. And tomorrow will be just like today. And they kept mocking and ridiculing him. Peter said... That's the way it's going to be in the last days. He says in Second Peter chapter 3, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Now, do you see that? Peter says, I want to remind you what the prophets said. And I want to remind you of the commandments of the apostles that were given to them by who? 
by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that started this whole thing. Verse 3 says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And so they will call you crazy. And when you tell them every person is going to stand before God and every person will give an account of their life and of their belief in the gospel, they're going to scoff and they'll say, it ain't going to happen. It won't happen. And furthermore, we don't like you telling us that it's going to happen. And if you keep telling us that judgment is coming, and if you keep telling us that we have to turn from our sins, and you keep telling us there's this place called hell, not only do we not like it, but we're going to beat the stuffing out of you. So Jesus says here, someday you'll be vindicated. The truth will triumph. God's word is true. And you don't fear them. You just tell it like it is. And you'll have all of eternity to rest in that truth, and they'll have all of eternity to suffer for not believing it. See, I I don't worry about what the next-door neighbors think about Berean Baptist Church. I don't worry what other churches think of us because we don't water down the gospel. I don't worry what they think about us because we still preach about hell and we still preach about judgment and we still talk about salvation in Jesus Christ alone, him alone, I don't worry about that. I don't worry that we're not politically correct. It doesn't bother me because you know why? It's going to be proved in the latter day. We stood up for him. We stuck to the, stuck to the truth, and God's going to reward us for that faithfulness. And here's the whole sense of the passage in this particular part. It is not worth it to compromise the truth. And the last part of the verse tells us that. And we'll get that. that that's the last part of where he says that, He can destroy both soul and body in hell. It tells us that. We'll get to that in a few minutes. All they can do is destroy our reputation. All they can do is destroy our bodies. But the Word of God says God is able to cast both soul and body into hell. So who do you fear? you fear them or do you fear God? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart, and then every man shall have praise of God. Now we go on then to verse number 27, and he says, What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in the light. And what you hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. Now here Jesus is telling them, You shout out the secrets. You tell them everything that I've told you. And we notice here that the crowds that were normally following Jesus were not around at this point. Jesus is not addressing a huge crowd of people like he did on the Sermon on the Mount. There are not 5,000 people there, 5,000 men besides the women and children that are waiting for Jesus to break five loaves and two fish and feed an entire crowd. All of those people aren't there. These are 12 men Jesus called aside. He began to speak to them and he gives them these instructions. This is a private moment that he has with them, and he's telling them what they can expect. Now, during the course of his ministry, he told them many things. He had many of these private times. He told them about the Holy Spirit, instructed about that. He told them about his death. He talked about his resurrection. But all of those teachings that Jesus gave in the private moments were not intended to stay private. What he told them in their ears and within their hearing, that was to be proclaimed everywhere that they went. Now, you see, the great thing about the Bible and about Christianity is that everything that we need to know is contained right here. 
God's not trying to keep any secrets from us. God's not trying to hide anything. We don't have any secret rituals and rites in Christianity. We don't have a secret handshake before you can get into the building. We don't have mysteries that only a select few people can understand. You see, the gospel is open to everyone. And when a person receives that gospel, the things that were mysterious to him and the things that were incomprehensible to him become mysteries solved. And they become truths that are comprehensible. And that's because the Holy Spirit comes to live in the life of a Christian and he he causes us to know and understand what God's Word says. God is not trying to hide anything. If he was, he would never have given us the Word. You know what happened in false Christianity after this time? There were some who claimed that they were successors to the apostles, and somehow they missed this particular part of Jesus' teaching. The Roman Catholic popes and cardinals claimed to be successors to the apostles. The pope claimed to be Christ's representative on the earth. And yet for centuries they said, and they were against anybody reading the Bible. They said, you can't read the Bible. They said the Bible is secret. You can't understand that. There's no use reading it. The Bible is a secret that can only be disseminated in small parts by those who have been ordained by the Roman Catholic Church. And so they hid the Scriptures. They wouldn't let it be translated into the ordinary language of the people. They didn't want people reading the Bible. John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English, and they declared him to be a heretic. And when he died, they dug up his bones and they burned them. Now today, Bibles are available plentifully. I mean, you you, you don't have to search too hard to find a Bible. But the Roman Catholic Church is still telling people that you can't understand it. You need a priest to tell you what the Scriptures mean. But listen to what the Scripture says. Just, Just over the next page of your Bible, Matthew 11, verse 25 At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and to whomsoever he will reveal him. So to whom is the Son revealed? Is that the popes? Is that the cardinals of the Roman Catholic Church? Is it those that have gone to seminaries and been educated beyond their intelligence? No, the Word of God says that he reveals this to babes. The apostles were unlearned and ignorant babes. The world's wisdom doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit speaks. He enlightens people to the gospel. And God does not intend to keep secrets from any Christian. And this is what some people say. Some, some of the charismatics will come along and they'll say, let me reveal the Holy Spirit to you. Let me release an atmosphere of worship so that you'll know the Holy Spirit's there. Let me be your spiritual link with a special anointing that I have from the Holy Spirit. Folks, this stuff is not secret. There are no secrets in the Christian life. There aren't any secrets about how to contact God. There are no secrets about the Holy Spirit that have to be released by anybody. Everything that you need to know is right here in this book. It's all told it to you there. All you have to do is read it to believe it. And you know the Word of God says that God is even so gracious, He'll give you the faith to believe it. If you want this, you can have it. All you have to do is ask for it. So it's not secret. 
There are no secrets in the Christian life. So what we have to do is stop insisting that we have a better way to do things. And we need to stop resisting what the Holy Spirit says and think that we have some kind of a different notion of God, that we can worship God in any way that we please, that we can know God in the way that we think. The Bible already has this information. For 2,000 years, it's had it, and the gospel has been shouted out and preached from the housetops so that people can hear what the Word of God says and believe it. You know, one of the interesting things about this statement that Jesus made, back in those days, the rooftops were flat. People would go up there in the evening, and they would sit, and they would have their social times in the cool of the evening sitting on the top of a house. And whenever they wanted, had something to say, they wanted everybody to hear, they would stand on top of their house, and they would shout it to people that were going by in the streets. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And they still observe that custom somewhat in Muslim countries. And this is why that you see these huge minarets, these towers that are built in Muslim countries. And they put some guy up there in the tower, and five times a day he announces the prayer times. Well, they've kind of stopped doing that because with all the noise that there is, all the cars and the streets and everything going on, they don't do that any longer. Instead, they put a speaker up there, and they've got a recording that announces the prayer time so everybody can hear it. And that's pretty much what Jesus is talking about here. But instead of getting up and announcing prayer time to a heathen God, he says, you get up and you speak the gospel of Christ. And so this is what people would do. They would choose a high place. They would choose a rock to stand on, a porch at the top of the stairs, and they would stand there and they would preach the things that Christ told them and they wouldn't hold anything back. There were no secrets for them to keep. And that's why we don't hide certain parts of the Word of God. That's why we don't try to keep the difficult parts secret or the unpopular parts secret. And somebody would say to me, well, why do you preach all those Sunday mornings on hell when most churches won't talk about it at all? And why are you preaching about this commitment to Christ and about persecution and hardships? And why aren't you telling everybody that really God wants you to be rich, that Christianity is a cakewalk, and when you trust Christ, all of your dreams will come true? Why don't you preach that? Because the guy that does that in Houston can get 43,000 people in his church every single Sunday. And there are people around the area that can fill up churches here. And everybody goes to church and they get their Christian fix. And they feel good about their lives. And they, they, they don't think about being condemned for the filthy rottenness of their sins. Why don't you try that approach for a change? Why? Because that's not what Jesus said. We're told to preach what Jesus told us to preach, plus nothing, minus nothing. He said, preach this and shout it from the housetops when you do. And there are 36 or 37 verses in this chapter that deal with Christian commitment. And I would have to ask you, what business is it of mine to hide what Jesus said? I have to preach it. And he said, preach it, and it's going to make people mad. But he said, I don't care, make them mad. Just preach it anyway. So I'm not going to keep hidden what Jesus said about the Christian life. I'm not going to keep keep hidden from you what he says about judgment. I'm not going to keep hidden from you that he says you must repent and believe the gospel. I'm not going to keep hell hidden as if it doesn't exist. I just do what Jesus said. And that's what Jesus told them to do. Tell them what I told you. And the rest of the New Testament is taken up with the apostles explaining things that Jesus said. 
just going over those things. Nothing more, nothing less than what God revealed to them. And so if you say, well, that's too harsh, that's too demanding, it's too unpopular, then all I can tell you, take it up with Jesus because he's the one that said to do it. He said, shout it from the housetops. You know, there's a song that came out a few years ago that I like. Maybe some of you have heard this. The chorus of the song goes this way. It says, oh, I'm going to shout it from the housetops, proclaim it from the mountaintops. Tell the world around me, Jesus saves. Well, I have made my choice. I'm going to make a joyful noise. The world will hear my voice. Jesus saves. You know, I like that, but I wanted to add something to that. I'm going to shout it from the housetops, proclaim it from the mountaintops, tell the world around me, Jesus saves. And if you don't repent, your soul is hell-bent and judgment comes on you right out of the grave. Now that leads me to verse number 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Thirdly, there is a price to pay. I spent all those weeks talking about hell, and I think you should be convinced, hopefully by now, that God will destroy soul and body in hell. And if you really need me to go back over Revelation 20, 11 through 15, I'll do that, not right now, but I'll do that if you're unconvinced about this place called hell. I'm happy to spend another four or five hours teaching you what the Bible has to say about this subject. Here is the rightly placed fear. I don't fear ridicule. I don't fear anybody that says I'm going to shut you up one way or the other. I have no reason to fear them because I know this. If somebody comes and cuts my head off, he's only doing me a favor. Now, I'm not going to call in that favor today, anytime soon, but uh, this is what happens for a Christian. I mean, you're better off. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Therefore, we are always confident knowing that whilst we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, willing rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And he says in Philippians chapter 1, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. And listen, whether it be by life or by death, for for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so now that I am a Christian, I don't fear leaving this life. My fear is that any of you will not believe, and therefore you will lose your soul and your body in hell. Now let's think for a moment why Jesus said this in this place. If you look at all the surrounding material, we've got much to go. But you look at the other verses, and you can see that he's telling us what real faith in him means. And if your faith falls short of what he says down in verses 38 and 39, then you don't have a real saving faith. And there he talks about taking up your cross and following him and forsaking everything for him. He says you have to lose your life for him. And even it might be beyond the metaphorical sense that God requires for you to give your life. So you're not to fear the judgment of hell because if you are a Christian but you do fear it enough that you make sure that your faith is genuine. You see, real faith fits this passage. And if you're more afraid of what man can do to you, and you don't understand what God can do, then you've never truly believed in Christ. So I'm just asking the same thing that Jesus asked back then. I'm 
not going to keep any part of this hidden from you. I'm not going to try to obscure discipleship and tell you that you can have Christ without having everything that goes with it. The disciple is not above his master, and the servant is not above his Lord. And so if you want Christ, you have to be prepared to take everything that goes with him. And if you have real saving faith, you will do that. You won't hear me say, like the campus crusade for Christ, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and then not follow that up with you are a sinner, and you need to repent of your sins, and if you don't, hell is your only option. And amazingly, have you heard that Campus Crusade for Christ is changing their name? Their new name is Crew. And here's what they say. There's only, this is actually their words. There's only one reason we change. We want to do a better job of connecting people to God's love and forgiveness. It's all about helping people experience the good news that Jesus offers. So they figured out that the best way to get the message of Christ out is to drop his name. Well, I'm glad that they did that. I'm glad they did because a gospel that doesn't divulge hell and one that doesn't tell people to repent of their sins and tell people they must make a commitment to Christ is not a gospel at all. And so I'm happy if they disassociate themselves from Christ in that way because their gospel is not his gospel. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is not a gospel of you. It's a gospel of Christ. And unless you're ready for all of this, don't think that you can have any part of it. So you learn what you should fear so that you don't fear the wrong thing. What Jesus is telling us here, the world is no match for God. He's the one that holds your destiny, your life and your death in his hands. Fear God because he's the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the time we've spent here today. Help us to be very clear about this, that the gospel that's being preached in many churches today is not really the gospel of Christ when it does not mention repentance, when it doesn't mention judgment, when it doesn't talk about being saved from something. It's not really the gospel of Christ. This is not all about feel-good stories and all these other things. This is about knowing Jesus Christ personally, about knowing what life in him really means, having him sunk down into our souls so that we're willing to go through everything that he went through. Lord, help us to preach the truth of your gospel, and may you open up hearts to understand it. Bless our people today, Lord, as we sing, and we give all of this to you, Lord. It's all in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.